brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Back in the saddle and ready to ride, dear people, from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we have spent a lot of time talking about how we've been screwed by the system, how our leaders have led us astray, and just how backwards our current lifestyles really are. We spend most of our time at jobs we can't stand just to get enough green paper to get us through another 30 days. We spend most of it on cheap, pre-made food because we lost the knowledge to cook for ourselves, and some of us even pay for gym memberships to simulate the use of our body we used to just call living. We grow and mow useless patches of grass instead of anything we could use or eat, and we perpetuate the cycle of suckling at the teat of a tyrannical system out of ignorance, convenience, and complacency. Yes, the puppet masters of the Western world dangled that quarter-pounder carrot in front of us, and we wandered right into the trap of microwavable TV dinners, pill-popping, and the hypnotic nightly news. But it does take two to tango. Maybe we didn't ask for the Rockefeller-Rothschild debt-based system of rule, but we definitely embraced it all with open arms, and I think people are finally realizing how fascinating, beneficial, and downright magical our natural systems really are and the prospect of a pivot back to a simpler life is sounding better all the time. So maybe it isn't as sexy as secret space programs and CIA mind control, but permaculture, a reintroduction to nature, and the empowerment gained from shucking off the slave system are useful tools for the long game, and I don't think they should be overlooked. And I'm sure these feelings are shared by today's guest Peter Allen, who is an ecologist turned farmer focused on restoring functional and productive savanna ecosystems. He owns and manages Mastodon Valley Farm in southwest Wisconsin, where he runs a successful all-natural meat subscription business. He also runs Savannah Gardens LLC, an education and consulting company focused on permaculture, restoration agriculture, holistic planning, and ecological design. So let's stop bitching and start living. The land management magi, Oak Savannah Sage, permaculture pimp, and master of his Mastodon Valley Farm domain. Peter, welcome to the higher side. Hey, thanks, Greg. Great intro as always. Oh, I try, but man, I am really psyched to be doing this. Thanks for being here. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. For people who probably don't know, you are a Plus member who reached out after hearing me mention the desire to focus on a few shows that could be about permaculture, the things that are really your expertise. And here we are. I got to say that 
I find this exciting because in the same way we learn about cars that used to run on alcohol, flying saucer technology, free energy devices, light therapy, holistic medicine, natural cancer cures, all these things I'd consider really powerful tools that were once there in the past. We don't have many more. They've probably been suppressed. I think engineered abundance and biodynamic agriculture, I think they qualify as things to put under the umbrella of suppressed knowledge and lost technology when you really think about it. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah. I mean, nature itself is magic. I mean, the process of photosynthesis is a magical phenomenon. And so all of our technology in modern times is very mechanical and sort of based on chemistry and manipulation of the physical domain. With genetic engineering, we're starting to get into the biological domain, but most of biology has not been penetrated by our natural sciences. And so we've got a lot of work to do to figure out how to reintegrate ourselves within the natural world. But fortunately, there's a lot of techniques that have already been developed and we just have to plug in and, and get to work. Mm-hmm. I agree. So to use your own journey and developing interest in permaculture and holistic thinking as a sort of template, I'm curious to know about some of the early things that you learned about engaging with the natural world that maybe surprised you and lit that fire to learn more. Yeah, well, it really started for me when I was in college. I ended up getting a degree in environmental science, but I didn't start out that way. I started out in the business school, didn't like that, floated around for a bit, and I ended up having to take a biology credit. And so I took a class called Plant and Plant Communities. And all it was was a week-long trip to the Smoky Mountain Park. And basically, every day we got up and spent the whole day in a different kind of plant community learning the plants. And we would learn 20, 30, 40 species a day. So I learned 100 plants plus in a short period of time. And I'd spend a lot of time outside growing up. I grew up hunting and fishing with grandparents and stuff like that. And always enjoyed being outside and was into backpacking and stuff like that. But to me, the outside was just like green nature. When I would go for a hike, it was beautiful, but it, it was just green and beautiful. And then when I learned the plants, it's like a whole new world opened up. And so it really started me on a journey of now when I went out outside, went hiking, taking my dog for a walk, I would try to recognize the plants and try to identify them. And then if I didn't see one, it was like a challenge to figure out what it was. And that just sort of led me on this lifelong pursuit of basically reintegrating back into nature, first starting by figuring out what's there to begin with. Mm. Yes, I was going to bring up that very class. It made me think about that book and documentary, The Secret Life of Plants, and that I think it's it's mainly about how maybe they do have this sort of conscious intelligence and we seem to generally overlook it. Maybe they do have some language and communication that isn't in English, obviously, but that doesn't mean it's not intelligent. I mean, is that kind of your impression of the plant world now? Yeah, I mean, that's a very complicated subject, but there's more and more research showing how plants communicate both within members of the same species, but also between species, and then especially using fungus as a sort of communication medium. Mm. There's a lot of evidence showing that basically what's going on under the earth is that there are symbiotic fungus that lives literally like inside the plant roots. 
and then they connect multiple species together. And so that can serve both as communication channels, but also as highways to move energy and materials around. So when one plant needs extra energy because it's flowering, the fungus can pull energy from another species that's not flowering right now and doesn't need it, basically send it along this superhighway, shoot it up to the plants that need it. And so, you know, in an ecosystem, plants are, there's different species that flower throughout the year. So every species has its own like one or two week window where it's at peak flowering. And the fungus underground seems to migrate that energy and material between the plants when it needs it. The extent that the energy and material routes also serve as a communication in a form of consciousness is obviously more speculative, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Yes, fungus and mushrooms are really a rabbit hole in their own right. I've heard little anecdotes about the fact that they seem to be able to survive in the vacuum of space, and maybe they are some weird alien intelligence that is kind of contributed to the terraforming of the planet. And if I mean, you want to talk about speculation, there we are. But, you know, for me, with this whole section of material, when I read some of the descriptions of what North America looked like before the Europeans arrived, that's kind of what blew me away and set me off. I mean, descriptions that mention things like so many fish in the river that horses are crossing almost without touching bottom. And just the change in understanding from thinking Native Americans just lived off the land to seeing how they actually worked with nature to amplify the resources they had. I mean, it starts to sound like a paradise. And I've heard you refer to this as the wilderness myth. Tell us a bit about that and what the land looked like before the white man came, if you could. Yeah. So the wilderness myth is something that's sort of subconsciously programmed into all of us in North America. We think that this continent was a natural wilderness when the first settlers arrived. And yeah, there were humans hunting and gathering and eating berries and fruit and stuff and maybe hunting deer here and there. But they were living within a wilderness kind of more passively. And that notion permeates how we think about nature. I mean, we assume that nature, sort of the definition of nature means a place sort of without people. So if you say something is all natural, it means it hasn't been corrupted by people. And there's this assumption that humans equaled somehow not natural and a corruption of nature. When you look at the historical landscape and all of the evidence that we can pull out of data in terms of pollen records and soil cores and stuff like that, there is massive evidence that the ecosystems across the continent are not organized the way they would have been if there were no humans here. Mm -hmm. If there had been no humans present in North America when the first Europeans came, it would have been a much different continent. It would have been densely forested, at least in the eastern half, and there would have been much less diversity of both plants, but also herbivores, specifically bison and elk and deer, which were in eastern North America, especially at huge, massive numbers, even to the point where North America produced more meat in terms of pounds of, say, meat from a bison or from a deer or from an elk than we produce today in our industrial agricultural systems. Hmm. So 
you know, you talked about the Native Americans and how you could, you know, kind of walk across the water on fish. And some of that, we've got to be a little bit careful there because... Poetic license? Well, there was an abundance of biological diversity here for sure. But there was also a massive genocide of the indigenous peoples preceding the first settlers coming in and writing accounts of it. And so basically, if Native Americans were managing the landscape and eating a lot of animals, and then all those people die, then all those animals are going to explode in population numbers. So the fish in the seas, the bison out west, and the, say, passenger pigeons, which were a hunted species, may have been in such exorbitant numbers in the early 1800s, not just because they were always like that, but because we slaughtered all of the hunters. Mm, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like a factory that you flipped the switch on and then walked away from. It's producing, but you're not consuming what it produces. That's exactly right. And so we got to be a little bit careful with the early settler accounts of things because it's a little inflated over what it would have been before. But even just looking at the landscape itself, the fact that it wasn't closed canopy forest from sea to shining sea means that there were active people here shaping the landscape for their own benefit. Essentially, Native Americans were practicing advanced forms of agriculture, creating ecosystems that produced an immense amount of food. It's hard to say whether they're comparable with what we produce in terms of food today, but just looking at the amount of herbivores present on the continent tells you that because there was more meat produced back then than there is now, clearly there was a lot of food being grown. Their most common tool for land management was fire. So most areas were burned most of the time, like most years, most areas would get a fire. And these fires weren't like forest fires, they were small ground fires. So anytime a grassland does not get fully grazed, by the end of the year, it's got a lot of dead grass and material biomass hanging out. And if you can burn that off, you massively increase the amount of production that that piece of land can produce. And so by burning they were able to essentially move animals around because following a burn, the grass that grows is extremely high in protein and sugar. It's like candy for a cow or Mm -hmm. for a buffalo. So by burning patches of ground, they could essentially move herds of buffalo around. A kind of rotational grazing that farmers do today was practiced back then, but using fire instead of fences. Yeah, I love that. Uh, That was something I picked up from those chapters you sent me of your soon-to-be-finished book. And in there, you mentioned that there were hundreds of reasons that they used fire. And we have talked about that biochar process in the past a little bit, but this idea of moving mammals around was really like an eye-opener to me, as well as just how important oak trees were and acorns and that they would burn under the oak trees prior to acorn harvesting because it clears the ground to make the harvest easier. You can see them. And it also kills insects and pests that would have otherwise compromised some of that crop. And it's just like, man, we really have a pretty racist look at these people as maybe savages or just kind of dealing with what they had. But 
I mean, these are human beings too, and they have just as much intelligence as anyone. And this is just how it manifested in their environment. And clearly, at least to me, it's better than what we do when you can see the results of where our system has taken us. Absolutely. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is to the extent which humans evolved with the oak tree. Acorns were a staple crop for indigenous North Americans, but they were a staple crop for our ancestors too. You just got to look back prior to the Neolithic, the agricultural revolution. So in Northern Europe, the old oak groves, I mean, it's not even just Northern Europe, it's pretty much all of Europe had chestnut and oak groves or savannas across the continent that our ancestors closer to, you know, 8,000 years ago, in the same way, that was their staple crop. And so oak trees are amazing because they've got so many different varieties that grow in so many different conditions. There's the white oaks that grow in eastern North America that grow all the way from Manitoba down to Mexico. And then, you know, where you're at in Southern California and all the way up the West Coast, there's different varieties of acorns that produce very edible and very high quality nuts pretty prolifically. And so when you have a savanna type landscape with widely spaced trees, these trees can produce an enormous amount of food. And it has been a staple crop that humans have relied on for survival for tens of thousands of years. Hmm. Well said. And I wanted to talk a little more about savannas versus forest because that is the evidence that we know the landscape was engineered because if you leave it alone, we get forests and forests, as you said, were not the dominant ecosystem across the Midwest. Savannas were. And I think we're starting at such a base level. I don't know if people have a mental construct for what a savanna is or how it's different from a forest, but can you break down some of those important differences? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, there's a spectrum. So we can start with a grassland, which is like some pasture or prairie that it's just open, no trees and full of grasses. And then we all know what a forest is, where there's a closed canopy of trees. If you go into a forest, it's pretty dark. Not a lot of sunlight actually gets down to the ground. And then a savanna is a place that is a grassland. So it's a continuous cover of perennial grasses on the ground, but then have scattered trees. And so if you're to take a piece of land and let it go and don't do anything with it, say it was plowed as a crop field and then you just abandon it. If you're in the eastern United States where we get plenty of rain, first grasses are going to grow and weeds, thistles and stuff like that will come in and go and then the grasses will get established and pretty quickly you're going to get trees starting to grow, fast growing shrubs and trees. And generally, within 20 or 30 years, you've got trees growing pretty quickly that by year 30, you can get to the point where you have kind of a closed canopy where the ground starts to get shaded out. And then once the ground gets shaded out, you lose grass. Grass needs sunlight. And so once there's shade over grass, it basically goes away. And grass is what holds on to the soil. So when it rains, if there's grasses, those grassroots hold on to the soil. And if there's not grassroots, your soil washes away. So in crop fields, every time it rains, soil washes away. In forests, you don't lose as much because you have tree roots that hold on to the soil, but they don't hold on as well as grassroots. And so the beauty about savannas, you never have enough shade to shade out the grasses. You always have grasses. 
but you also have the trees and all the benefits that they provide. Trees are like the sweat pores of our planet. You know, they transpire. You know, an oak tree will pull up hundreds of gallons of water a day out of the ground and transpire it into the atmosphere, just like our sweat glands pull moisture out and then that evaporates on the surface. Trees do the same thing, but at a huge scale. And then, you know, obviously they produce food and do a lot of other good things too, photosynthesize. But having a savanna means that you have a continuous layer of grasses on the ground with scattered trees that aren't close enough together to then shade out the grasses. And in the eastern United States, we get enough rain that if you let a piece of land go, it turns into forest really, really quick. You never get a savanna. They just don't happen naturally. They're very unnatural ecosystems. When you define natural as being in absence of humans. So if you take humans out of the equation, you don't get savannas. You know, we were in the ice ages 12,000 years ago. And it seems to be about the same time that the ice ages ended is when Native Americans sort of in earnest conquered North America and South America and Central America. And following the ice ages, once the ice melted, we basically turned into a, a boreal forest. And then as it warmed up, Native Americans came in and pretty quickly, like within a few thousand years, it went from forest to an open oak savanna. You start seeing oak pollen and grass pollen in the pollen signatures about 8,000, 6,000 years ago, which is pretty remarkable because neither grasses nor oak trees can grow in shady conditions. Oak trees cannot grow, cannot generate, an acorn will not sprout and turn into an oak tree if it's shaded at all. So once a forest turns shade, you basically say goodbye to the oaks. So the fact that we had oak trees so prevalent in our ecosystems for so long is a dead ringer giveaway that something was going on to set back the forest. And it was clearly Native Americans with fire. Mm. Yes. And with this wilderness myth, something I hadn't thought much about is how this affects much more than our ideas of pre-colonial America. It's still affecting us today. Even people whose hearts and minds are in the right places, like these ecological communities and conservation movements, they're all backwards too, because they still have this presupposition that we need to just leave nature alone and let it get back to how it was. And it's not going to be what you want because you're already starting off of a false premise. And it's just interesting to see how even now that's still affecting even people who are trying to do the right thing. Oh, absolutely. It's permeated, especially in the environmental and ecological communities. I mean, I spent a decade at University of Wisconsin doing ecology and restoration ecology where, you know, we would try to go restore an ecosystem, but they define restoration as returning it to its natural state like it was before we got here, which is so ironic. It's just absurd when you really look at it, but nobody really sees the problem there, the contradiction in that if you want to restore the landscape to the way it was before Europeans got here, that's fine. But we've got to realize that that wasn't natural, at least how we define natural. So like the wilderness myth has made its way into our definition of what natural means. Realizing that the planet hasn't been the same since humans evolved as a species, especially since we got the use of fire tens of thousands of years ago. The planet's not the same. So if we define natural as meaning without humans, then we've got to go way back 
And we don't have any idea of what that might look like anyways. And what's the point? We know that we had really diverse ecosystems here before Europeans arrived that produce a whole lot of food. And so when I was at the university doing restoration work, we would restore a prairie and then they would want to burn it all the time. But even when you burn prairies all the time, the trees start to come in and the trees will get kind of used to getting burned after a while and it will start to degrade quality over time without herbivores. Like grasslands need grazers. They co-evolved together for 20 million years. They absolutely need each other. So you can't really have a grassland without a grazer. And so when I would try to convince a university or a conservation project to let me bring in cattle to flash mob graze a prairie restoration, just like the bison would have, you know, I got laughed out of the room because A, cows aren't native. And B, that's why would we ever do that? Because we know that Indians burned, so we should just burn. So they did burn, but they burned in order to bring the bison in, not just to burn for the heck of it. So mm-hmm. the contradiction in modern ecological restoration community, especially in the eastern United States, is pretty intense. And once you look at the historical record and what the Native Americans are doing, it becomes blaringly obvious that we can't restore our historic ecosystems without playing an active role in the management and maintenance of those systems. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also wanted to ask you about water a little more because I got from those chapters that you let me check out that there used to be, I guess, 250 native types of freshwater shellfish before, I guess, the algae started consuming everything. But you say in your area, you say Madison, Wisconsin, sits nestled between four lakes surrounded by a large watershed filled to the brim with urban development and farmland. These lakes, therefore, continually receive huge inputs of nitrogen and phosphorus from the fertilizer spread to keep lawns green and crop yields high. In the heat of summer, the city of Madison has to monitor the lakes for toxic algae blooms, which they typically publicly announce in order to keep people and their pets from swimming in the poisoned waters. I think that's just crazy. You write in the book a little bit about clear water versus this uh, like pea soup-like covering that happens. How does this affect our water? What was a better way to manage natural water systems? How was it done before? So in lake ecosystems, there's two states that can exist. And they're sort of like one or the other. There's not much in between. One is a clear water state where there's relatively low amount of phosphorus is the main kicker in aquatic systems. And phosphorus comes in via runoff when it rains from soil. It sticks to soil particles. So if you put phosphorus fertilizer on a crop field and then it rains, it runs into the waterway and now you've got phosphorus in your water. And basically what happens is when you have a clear water system, you have sunlight getting to the bottom of the lakes. And so in our area, we've got a lot of these glacial lakes that are basically leftover melted glaciers that turn into these lakes. And when you read the historical accounts of the first settlers, specifically these ones in Madison, they would go out on a canoe and they could see 250 feet down to the bottom of the lake and see the white clay lake bottom. And they could see all the plants and fish in between. And so these clear water lakes, you know, you can think of it kind of like as a forest. So there's sunlight filtering through the water that supports plant growth, especially around the edges where it's not too deep. And these plants produce a whole lot of oxygen, which then gets dissolved into the water. So these plants produce food for people like wild rice and lotus, which produces an edible root, cattails and the like. 
And so these plants are in there producing both food for humans, but also food for fish and habitat. And so these clear water lakes were super filled with fish because of all the food and oxygen that the plants produced. It supported a huge fish ecosystem. So there was like the little fish, the pan fish, then the little bass. And then you have a whole, you know, food chain on up to your big, giant, like five foot long lake trout, which were predators that ate other big fish. And this was sort of like, you know, I talked about acorns being staple crops for Native Americans. They would harvest those in the fall and that would get them through the winter. But summertime, people were on the water pretty much across North America. Summertimes were spent on the water because we had such amazing aquatic resources in terms of fish and shellfish. And so basically what happens when you put phosphorus in the water, whether that's directly in terms of sewage or indirectly in terms of runoff from either crop fields or from urban development, you start putting phosphorus in that water and it reaches a threshold where basically there's enough phosphorus to spawn an algae bloom. And these algaes are really, really ancient cyanobacteria. They're, they were the first species to evolve photosynthesis that releases oxygen as a byproduct. So they were the first ones to do photosynthesis as we know photosynthesis today a long, long, long time ago. But anyway, once they get enough phosphorus, they bloom and they shade out the plants and they consume all the excess oxygen. So the shade kills the plants and the consumption of excess oxygen kills the fish. And then once you kind of have that for a little while, you lose your plants, which then doesn't allow you to rebuild your fish populations because of the lack of oxygen and the lack of food and habitat. And so you get a eutrophic system, which there are some fish like the Asian carp that can live in these really murky pea soup summer waters feeding on the algae. So you can get algae feeders that can survive, but pretty much all your other fish and then all the plant resources, all those go away too. And so we call that eutrophic, which just means over-nutrified. And so now we're at a place, eastern United States, especially in the Midwest, where all the ag land is, all of the waterways are eutrophic, even the rivers and lakes. You can't really fish in them. You don't want to swim in them. People's dogs die every year because they go swimming in the lake when there's an algae bloom. The cyanobacteria produces a neurotoxin, which is toxic for mammals. And so it's pretty ugly. Hmm. It's just so weird to even think about the intelligence of nature almost like responding in a way that's like, hey, you give me poison, you get poison back. I don't know. It's just uh, when you think about the environment is conscious and there's this relationship, regardless of if we're treating it right or wrong, there is a cause and effect relationship that comes right back to us. I mean, we're not separate from nature, but we have this idea that we are. But I don't know. It's just interesting to see that dynamic at play on the negative side of things. Oh, that's exactly right. The landscape is sending us signals all the time telling us we're on the right track or the wrong track. And if we ignore those and we're on the wrong track, it just gets worse and worse to the point where you can't grow food anymore and you're polluted out of house and home. (laughs) Indeed. And it's interesting and definitely new to me to hear about the engineered savannas of America. I wanted to try to squeeze in a little bit about the Amazon. It is obviously the most complex and biodiverse landscape on the planet. And I think the wilderness myth might plague it as well, because you told me that it's pretty clear that it was engineered. How do we know? What are the signs and clues that kind of show us that? Essentially, when you 
exclude humans, the plant community, it's the same exact phenomenon as we're talking about for North America in that when you have humans managing a system for themselves to produce food, those are the type of species that are going to persist in your force in your ecosystem, whether that's a savanna in the Midwest or the Amazon at the equator. And so when we look at the species composition the way it was when we can first have any data on it, there was a lot more species that produce food for humans in that species composition than there is now. So as humans are removed and less active in the system, it goes to a less diverse state and a state that produces more trees that don't produce food for humans. So there's obviously a wide spectrum of different species. Some of them are more valuable than others from a human perspective. The ratio of non-productive trees has increased over the last hundred years as humans have been less active in the ecosystem. And so what's really interesting is if you read about the indigenous people of the Amazon, we call their practices of agriculture slash and burn, which is a very derogatory way of gaining your existence. Slashing and burning sounds so bad, and we look down upon them for it. But when you actually go down to the Yucatan, which I have not done, but I've spoken to several archaeologists that have spent a lot of time down there trying to figure out the old ways of growing food. And essentially, you know, they would go into an area and clear out, say, an acre of forest, and then they would burn that. And they would burn the biomass in a very low intensity way. Like you mentioned biochar, it creates a lot of charcoal. So down in the Amazon, they don't have the thick topsoils that we have, thanks to our grassland ecosystems. Grassland ecosystems create topsoil. That's like one of the byproducts of a grassland with grazers is thick topsoil. And so we have that up here down there in a forest, all the nutrients that we have in our soils, they have locked up in their giant trees and plants. And so they really don't have a soil. All of the potential nutrients are used in a rainforest ecosystem. They're all up above ground. They're not below ground. And so it's really hard to grow annual crops. So vegetables, corn, grains, it's hard to grow that stuff because there's no soil minerals. All the nutrients are locked up in the trees. So they would cut down trees. So they would slash and burn, but they would do it on a whole in, as a part of this much larger cycle of food production. So you'd come into an area, you'd cut down an acre of forest, and you would burn it in a way that produced a whole bunch of charcoal on the ground. Then you could plant your garden, say. So you're going to have a really diverse garden of 80 to 150 different vegetables and plant species and grains. But at the same time, you're also planting fast-growing and slow-growing perennial trees to grow for your vegetables to grow between. And so they would plant their favorite fruit and nut-bearing trees in their gardens. And so in one year, they might slash and burn one acre but then that acre over the next 20 years, you know, for the first two or three years, it's producing annual vegetables, but then they would stop that and then they would just let the fruit and nut trees come. And then they have this one acre orchard or food forest of breadfruit and avocados and bananas and all the things that they have down there. And then they could go do that again somewhere else. And so you kind of zoom out and look at that process. It's like a 20 year process. By year 20, it's a closed canopy forest of all food producing trees. And they had an immense diversity down there. So we're talking like hundreds of species. Yeah. And if that had been let go, there would have been like the two dozen plant species that would have been there that they cut and burned that would have been there. But that's fairly low diversity relative to what they would then turn around and plant. 
So then you look at that scale at the one acre scale and then look at the whole Amazon and imagine hundreds of thousands of people over time doing that in all the little patches. What that turns into over time is an Amazon rainforest that's essentially one giant shifting mosaic of food forests. So they were essentially terraforming the Amazon in order to produce a whole lot of perennial foods, like food from trees. You know, they had their annual vegetables in there, but that was only a small part of the cycle. The main point is that they were planting lots of trees. Yeah. And when you think about the intelligence of the people who set that environment off, it's just pretty mind-blowing because, like you said, there's thousands of species that live in the Amazon and nowhere else and a lot of things we haven't even cataloged yet. And when you think about that being engineered, you really have to consider the relationship between even DNA and some of these processes. I think you talk about it in your chapters as the connection between complexity and diversity versus disturbance, that there's a relationship there. Because obviously, we're going to a pretty deep time depth, but it's almost like conjuring things that didn't exist before into being through a proper setting of the stage, so to speak, you know? Yeah, I mean, those disturbances are key to maintaining diversity in time because you get kind of static in the same place over time. And so, you know, you get these disturbances that can either be a small scale, like a Native American burning somewhere or like a slash and burn project down in the Amazon, or you can get the large scale disturbances like the end of the Ice Age, the Younger Dryas, the comet in the Yucatan that wiped out the dinosaurs. In order to keep nature going, we need these continual disturbances. Yeah, I don't think people really think about that, but it is a cycle. It really speaks to that. It's somewhat of an occult principle, but order out of chaos. It seems like, as you said, there are examples where they tried to do controlled burns on a schedule and they saw that that didn't really work. They tried to not do it at all and that didn't really work. It needs to somewhat be randomized to a degree. And I don't know, it's just strange because when you get into the magical mindset of druids and pagans, they're very of the earth. And that's kind of talked down on from like the Catholic perspective, of course. They were obviously genocided in their own right. But the principles are right there in practice when dealing with the natural landscape. It's it's baked into our system, it seems. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned how Clearly, the Native Americans or the Amazonians display a lot of intelligence in the way that they're managing the landscape. But the interesting thing is, it depends on how you define the word intelligence. So if you were to give them maybe like an IQ test, which was developed to measure a sort of Western-centric type of right-brained intelligence, you know, they may or may not actually do that well on that. But in terms of being able to connect with nature, they're on a whole nother level. And so it's almost like before we developed the Industrial Revolution and even the Agricultural Revolution, we were all much closer to the earth and we all had this sort of earth-based consciousness. Like we were plugged into the biosphere. We were a part of it and we could sense with our sensory organs, we could sense sort of what the landscape wanted and what we should do within the landscape to benefit both the land and ourselves. And that was just sort of like an inherent sixth sense that we all had. And it seems like the development of the right-brained logic and rational side of things that has started with the development of agriculture and has sort of plateaued with the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution, 
the consequence of that is we completely cut off our consciousness from the earth consciousness. So we have developed this very powerful individual ego, but it is divorced. It is separated from the natural world. And so while now we may have very smart people and very intelligent people that can do really amazing and impressive feats of the mind, we've lost the ability to connect and to have our consciousness be in touch with the consciousness of the earth. And so where I see us having to go from here is like we've developed this amazing intellect and now we have to use that intellect to consciously go back and reconnect with our ecosystem. So, you know, the indigenous people in North America, they weren't consciously embedded in their landscape. They were unconsciously embedded. They didn't know any other way. Now we've come completely divorced from that and it's time for us to consciously go and realize the problem, which is that we're disconnected from nature and then we have to consciously go back and reconnect ourselves. Cheers to that. And as we have talked about, a lot of this does start in the mind. If your ideas and philosophy are wrong, then your wrong actions are going to follow. And maybe this is where social conditioning and control come in. I'm sure it's both by design and a little accidental ignorance, the situation that we're in right now. But you write about this, you frame it up as the organic mind versus the mechanical mind. And some of those details will be self-evident, but talk to us a little bit about the difference and how we can better understand the mechanical mind to get away from it and move back towards that organic mindset. Well, the mechanical mind is basically how we've all been programmed. And I would absolutely agree that it's probably more accidental and incidental than anything else. But essentially, we've been programmed to see the world through a lens where the machine is sort of the ultimate metaphor. You know, we think of the universe as being like clock-like and that there's sort of this deterministic natural world that we fit within and everything is random. And the ultimate goal of any operation or any person is to sort of achieve machine-like efficiency and perfection. So when you hear some politicians saying we need policies that increase the efficiency of this or that, we all just sort of passively nod our head like, well, of course, that's a good thing. Like increasing efficiency is always a good thing. Well, increasing efficiency is a good thing sometimes, but it can be a horrible idea some other times. And so stepping back a little bit, we can see that the mechanical or machine-like conditioning that we've all undergone has allowed us to become really powerful and do things like develop computers and talk to each other across the internet wirelessly, which is amazing. But the consequence of that is we're ourselves starting to become machine-like. We're losing, which we've already lost our connection with the natural world, but now we're to the point we're so addicted to our screens. It's been shown that the more time you spend in front of a screen, the lower your empathy goes, which is really the fundamental characteristic that makes us human beings. And so as we keep developing in the mechanical world, we lose our connection to nature, we lose our connection to each other. And the end point of that basically is humans fully integrating in machines, which seems like an agenda that there are powers that are pushing us towards. But that doesn't mean we have to go along with it. And so it's my contention that we need to sort of unplug a bit, like let's use technology for good and recognize all the great things about technology, but hold back a little bit and let's be mindful about this and figure out what areas of technology should we avoid and how can we use technology to 
increase our reconnection with the natural world because this trajectory that we're on with the machine model, which applied towards food, means that we have factory farms, we have industrial agriculture, which is at a fundamental level destroying the planet, and which is one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing is because when you kind of realize the extent that we're polluting the earth and compromising the basic functionings of the planet's ecosystems, humans can't live without a planet that's functioning. And so we're able to sort of buy ourselves a little bit of time with really cheap fossil fuels, but because those fossil fuels substitute for a lot of the goods and services that we get from ecosystems, but that's a band-aid that doesn't last for very long. And so we really have to get our ecosystems back going if humanity is going to survive on this planet. And the only way I see us being able to do that is to get out of this mechanical mindset because the mechanical mindset does not work in the development of an ecosystem. You can't restore an ecosystem with the mechanical mindset. Nature will chew you up and spit you out. Amen. And that's exactly the kind of thing I was hoping we would get into because we can talk about screen addiction and 5G and techno surveillance, all these things that the conspiracy culture is really concerned about, shaking their fist at the air, but that doesn't do anything to fix it. I mean, we can say we've been led down this bad path and sure, it's important to see how that happened and exactly what manipulations were in place and how bad it was. But it doesn't do anything to get us off of that path. This really is the only way off as far as I can see. And it really gets to the heart of that personal responsibility element that is also what I think is important about learning about magic. I mean, I think nature, personal responsibility, magic, it's all kind of in that soup, the solution soup for getting us where we want to go instead of just bitching about where we've been. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, we got to find solutions, not just focus on the problems, right? So to me, the solutions involve, at sort of a fundamental level, rediscovering what it means to be human. Like, what does it mean to be a human being? Are there certain things that humans need to go through in order to be healthy, in order to be satisfied, to have a meaningful life? And are we missing those things in our modern world? I would argue that we are missing many, many things that our consciousness need to experience to be complete, full, happy human beings. And so that's sort of like the place to start. But then you sort of realize once you start going down this path, all of our senses are dulled and kind of retarded. All of our senses, they're like muscles. So like our eyes are like muscles. And if we don't use them, they start to degrade. And our hearing and our sense of smell and our sense of touch, all of our senses are being dulled the longer we sit in front of screens and all the time that we're not out in nature actually interacting with the real world, our senses are atrophying. And so that's like the first place to start is getting back in touch with your sense of smell and your sense of touch and your sense of sight and being able to see birds, being able to identify a bird in your peripheral vision without thinking about it. All these things that our human bodies are evolved to do a whole bunch of things. Like we should know all of the different sights and smells and sounds of animals and birds and plants. We shouldn't even have to see a bear if we're walking through the woods. We should just know that a bear was there an hour ago because there's a certain kind of scent left on a certain kind of plant. And these are the kinds of things that 
all of our ancestors knew. And I'm not saying like we all need to get that deep into it. It's just we need to realize what we've lost essentially in order to start finding it back. And so I'm never going to be that in touch with nature that I can do these things that I'm talking about. But I can make sure that my kids grow up in a world where they have the opportunities to keep their senses sharp and maintain more of a human existence. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting because you kind of talk about how it does take a generation. That might be a bitter pill to swallow because people want to think they can change it themselves. But we kind of have this slave mentality, this suckling at the societal teat attitude. We have lost personal responsibility. And maybe we are so brainwashed that we only can correct it by letting our kids be a little less brainwashed and then their kids a little less brainwashed. And that might be the sad reality that uh, we're kind of too far gone at this point to save ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it is sad when you think about it. I think that it is totally possible for all of us to do what we're talking about and sort of deprogram our brains and then reprogram them in a more natural way. We can all do that, but it takes a lot of work. I mean, it takes decades, years and years and years of work. And many people aren't going to be willing to do that. And so the probably more realistic way is, you know, we need a certain percentage of people to undergo that in this generation. And then we need to basically raise the next generation in a way where they're not as programmed. Not mm -hmm. that we have to program them the right way, but we just got to try to keep them from being programmed the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's kind of like nature will take its course and the proper mindsets will become apparent with less manipulation. At least I think so. Yes, I agree. And so just to get back a little bit to what you do, I'm sure there's all sorts of little nuances about how complex systems operate that you wouldn't see until you're really in it. Like one example I've heard you talk about is how we know animals like to scratch their butts on trees, right? But pigs roll around in mud and then when they do it, they're actually packing mud around the base of the tree, which protects it and keeps pests away and that sort of thing. And I just thought that was a really cool cause and effect. Are there other similar examples you've seen in nature's intelligence that you could tell us about? Oh, yeah, there's lots of things. You know, one thing would be that one of the big concerns right now with so-called climate change is methane and cattle are the big targets for that. It's like we got to get rid of our cattle because they're farting and belching. Well, the methane more comes from their burps and you can measure it because when they go to a confined animal feedlot operation, a big factory where they stuff cows in a building, they can seal the building and then they can count and measure the amount of methane coming off, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that it's a factory operation makes it really easy to measure the methane, okay? Now you put a cow out on pasture, it's a lot harder to measure. They just assume that because feedlot cows produce a lot of methane, pastured cows must too. But the research that's coming out now is that in healthy pastures where soil is being built through responsible grazing, there are a class of bacteria called methanotrobic bacteria that consumes methane. And so when a cow's got its head down eating grass, it may burp and methane may come out, but it immediately gets gobbled up by that bacteria, which then converts that methane into a CO2, making it much less harmful of a greenhouse gas. So when you isolate 
components out of nature, you get problems, you get pest disease, you know, all of our agriculture, whether we're talking conventional orchards or crop fields, you basically take one component of nature, say an almond tree, and we're going to plant thousands and thousands of almond trees right next to each other. We're going to spray herbicide to keep the grasses down, yada, yada, yada. You like separate something from the rest of nature. Well, when you do that, nature doesn't like it and it creates problems for you. And you're just like setting yourself up for a constant fight against diseases. And you take pigs and you put them into a feedlot. Well, then they start getting sick. And so what do you do? You start giving them antibiotics. Well, now we've got antibiotic resistant bacteria. So there's this like arms race that happens when we fight nature. The cool thing is when we start to work with nature is that it flips the other way. So instead of nature hurting us, nature starts to help us. And the example of the pigs is a great example of that, where if you have an apple orchard, there's all kinds of bugs that want to eat those apples. And many of them crawl right up the trunk of the tree to get to the apples. Well, if you've got pigs in there and they're wallowing in mud and scratching their butts on the tree, then they seal that tree. And now the insects can't climb up anymore. And so there's lots of examples like that where when you start to work in natural systems, nature rewards you because there's all these knock-on benefits that you probably didn't anticipate by restoring a more natural system. Wow, man. Yeah, I think those little examples are pretty fun and interesting. And maybe we can take that a little further with what you do on the farm in terms of using animals in place of mechanical tools sort of along the same lines, and also ties into the rotational grazing that you mentioned earlier. But what more can be said about a well-oiled farm's ability to get a little sweat equity out of its animals in holistic and natural ways? Yeah, so I guess we could back up a little bit. You know, we call it Mastodon Valley Farm for a couple of reasons. One is that there was a big Mastodon skeleton found after a flood back in the early 1900s, just a few miles from our farm. So there's lots of mastodons in our area, but there are mastodons all over eastern North America. Along with the rest of the megafauna, there was a lot of megafauna on this continent before the last ice age. And they had been here for a very long time, about 30 million years. And we're talking big horses and big ground sloths, beavers the size of a Volkswagen bug, really large animals. The bison that were here were much bigger than the bison that we have now, which actually came over from Eurasia fairly recently. They're like a small, a diminutive version of what we used to have, the original American bison. Anyway, there was lots of big animals here. And so we talked about how the role of the Native Americans in managing the savannah landscape with fire to keep things open and to maintain this balance between the grassland and the trees. What's interesting is when you look back before Native Americans got here, you see the same signatures, the same savanna landscape happening because we had all these huge animals that were eating the trees to maintain this open savanna landscape. So we've had savannas. They've been remarkably persistent for the last 30 million years, considering they're entirely unnatural, quote unquote, now. I think about that a lot. And so like all of the plants that we have around us evolved in the context of extreme grazing and browsing by large animals throughout their evolutionary history. And so we've got to remember that. And so we manage our animals in ways to try to mimic the way that the megafauna would have grazed. And so when a herd of bison, say, would have come through, there would have been a whole bunch of them and they would have plowed through the area, eating everything in sight, and then they would have left and then they wouldn't have come back. What happens when you graze an area really hard and then allow it to recover is that that recovery process is super beneficial for building soil and for plant diversity. So lots of plants really 
expect that pulsed grazing event. And so they really like it when they get it. And then you get more diverse pastures that have uh, much better soil. We obviously don't have mastodons and ground sloths anymore. The biggest animals I can get my hand on in a reasonable way are cattle and sheep and goats and pigs. We do poultry as well, so chickens and turkeys. And so each species has its own niche, its own sets of plants that it likes to eat, its own habitat that it likes to spend its day in. We try to graze in ways that are pulsed. So an area will grow up, it'll be really lush, it will hit it with the cows, we'll hit it with the sheep, we might bring in the pigs, and then we just let it go. and We let it rest for a month or five weeks or six weeks. And then at that point, it's lush and green and tall and ready to be grazed again, and then we'll graze it again. And it's that rest period following grazing that's essential to plant health and the ability to build soil. And so our big goal at our farm is to build soil kind of as rapidly as we can it's these long rest periods followed by pulsed grazing that allows us to build soil. And we're doing it, we're collecting data. And, you know, I knew it was possible, but until I started doing it, I didn't even really believe how fast you can grow soil. Very cool. And so a lot of us probably won't be able to completely dedicate ourselves to a multi-acre farm, but you know, maybe there are some people listening who are lucky to actually have a small yard or something like that. Do you have any advice or resources for people on how to make the most out of a little? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, obviously, there's a lower limit to what you can do with cattle. You know, there's lots of things available. If you've got a quarter acre, a half acre, an acre, I mean, ducks are really cool grazing animals. Like they eat a lot of grass and geese eat a lot of grass. There's really cool integrated systems that you can do with poultry or ducks, especially they work really well with tree planting. So growing an orchard or like a diverse kind of food forest, ducks and geese can be integrated into that. Obviously, lots depends on what kind of land you're on and soil and yada yada and all that kind of stuff. But it's not scale dependent. You don't have to be big scale. And a lot of times we're on 220 acres, which sounds like a lot to most people. But in ag land, that's actually like a tiny farm. But to most people, that's beyond imaginably big. And sometimes, I mean, I enjoy what I do, but I'm working on such an extensive land base that I don't get to really like zoom in and make small areas really. What's really cool about this is that there's really no limit to how much you can produce on an acre. Like you can just keep packing things in because nature wants to be diverse. And so if you can find the right species that have these positive interactions with each other that have symbiosis then you can really constantly stack things on top of each other. You can build little ponds that can have fish and you can do all these like little things. You can make microclimates so that even if you're in a cold region, if you bring in some rocks and dig a pond the right way, you can then increase the heat that is captured and stored on your land, which then allows you to grow plants or trees that produce fruit that shouldn't be able to grow there because it's too cold. Lots of things like that you can do on smaller acreage where you can really be intensively focused instead of extensively focused. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, that's definitely inspiring for people who maybe think that some of these things are outside of their means. And (laughs) it's just been awesome, man. I'm really glad we could do this. I think there's a lot of fun stuff to learn about within the realm of permaculture. And a lot of it does touch on many of the more wacky THC themes that a person might not think about at first. There's probably 
more connective tissue than they realize. And correcting our manipulated history is a big part of that and also taking responsibility for ourselves as well. Before we really wrap this thing up, I know your book isn't quite done yet, but what sort of things should we mention? Your meat subscription business again? Your classes? Yeah, so we teach a class if anybody's interested in learning more of this land management ecology, integrating back into nature. We teach a class every summer. We're in the process of building a house right now. Once we get that done, we're going to be able to have a few more course offerings. We do like timber frame building. We cut down trees and mill them into big posts and beams and then do the old school joinery type building, which is pretty cool. And yeah, follow along on our website, on social media, on Instagram or Twitter. We post a lot and try to be educational about helping people figure out what we're doing to restore the ecosystems and things that they can do as well. Right on. All good stuff. Well, thanks for being here, man. And thanks for being bold enough to actually be the change you want to see in the world. Hey, thanks a lot, Greg. You got it. Take care. And so it goes, people. And so it goes. Man, Peter definitely knows what he's talking about. It's always nice to give the platform to a plus member, too, because they know the tone and the flow of the show. We can know they're a kindred spirit, even if we stick to a semi-off-the-beaten-path path. We did get to talk a little bit about the esoteric and magical side of these things, although that's not Peter's forte per se. He is of the mutual opinion that it's in the mix of this kind of perspective and needs to be injected back into our culture and way of life, and I say cheers to that. And I think if I went back 20 years and told my 14-year-old self that my job was going to be putting out a radio interview on Oak Savannas, I might have just offed myself. (laughs) But we grow, and we learn, and we find interest in different types of things. And I like to think that we pushed our permaculture thread a little bit farther downfield. And I think the wilderness myth in terms of mindsets, is just a great way to encapsulate it all. And yes, it is a more practical show than talking about what the shadowy cabals are up to or a deconstruction of symbols on the dollar. But what are you going to do about that? Are you going to redesign the dollar? Is its power over our lives going to diminish because you've decoded it? Obviously, we want to keep abreast of the esoteric toolbox and what the elite are up to. That stuff is definitely interesting, but this stuff is potentially life-changing. Take this clip from the first season, maybe even the first episode of Seinfeld. It's one of my favorite Seinfeld nuggets of wisdom. What is the point of all this? Revenge. Oh, the best revenge is living well. There's no chance of that. You know, self-depreciation is always funny to me, but do you really want to be a George or do you want to be a Jerry? The one person who has their shit together almost always? I'm a big Seinfeld guy, and I always think of Jerry's casual attitude and the insane stress levels of the other characters, and it's because he's well-fortified and his friends are not. And that's just a TV show, but Peter made a real choice to take a tougher path. But he's definitely more fortified than I am. I'm doing quite well. 
but my entire empire is built on the shaky ground of the digital world and the network of currency exchange. And I'm just one EMP blast away from total ruin. When I really think about how many steps there are between me and the first-hand quality meat that Peter produces, I do get nervous. I think we should all consider our supply chains and how to shorten them and up the quality of them in the same way a family plans for how to escape their house in a fire. Scar was right. You gotta be prepared. And one thing I did realize when I did start to have some unconventional success is, oh, the Rothschilds and Rockefellers and the Archon-attached oligarchs, they aren't literally holding me down. Yeah, they built an uphill system that's very difficult to climb. They're dumbing us down and they sold us a false dream that it could be achieved by working within their companies. But if I stopped one of them on the street and said, hey, fuck you, buddy, I made it. They'd probably just say, how cute, what a good boy you are, and go about their day. They are steering cultures and nations, and they don't care about outliers or how high you climb if they still have the masses. And they're always going to. I wish it was different, but you can't control what other people do. So similarly, I'm never going to get to give the puppet masters a piece of my mind or a piece of anything else for definitely building structures that have influenced my life in a negative way. But instead, I could better insulate myself, better fortify myself from the tyranny of the system. Succeeding in it is one thing, not needing it is even better. So I just keep saying I, 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 because I don't want this to be preachy towards you. We can just use me as an example, but yeah, I overcame a part of it. I got out of the shitty corporate nine to five. I got rid of bosses. I got rid of economic and life fulfillment stress and got some of my time back. But I have done almost nothing to live well by the right standards, by the independent standards. You know, the whole thing of just not needing their system, circumventing it. And so I'm willing to take a little risk that maybe content-wise, this isn't a super exciting episode when you see the title. But I really do care about fighting this system and giving the people who listen some tools and resources rather than just some provocative conspiratorial speculation about the capstone cronies of the Big Pyramid. Instead, maybe you should work towards being the head of your own pyramid. It's how they would think. So that's my thoughts on it. Big thanks to Peter for sharing his story and his insights, but I also have a bit of an announcement to make on his behalf. When we recorded this, his meat business was only set up inside of a very limited local range. But you know that I've talked to you guys about ButcherBox on other health food related episodes and how I use them to get my meat. I think it's a lot better than most of my options. But a small farm that really cares for these animals uses rotational grazing and seems about as close to the purest and simplest way to do these things is even better. And I am happy to say I happened to have been Peter's guinea pig. It doesn't get much further for him than San Diego, and he was kind enough to send me a care package of meat, and it was really awesome. The packaging was great, the labeling was great, 
Those things are important to a degree, but the meat itself was excellent too. We had bacon, sausages, a nice big hunk of meat my wife made. Maybe it's a roast. I'm bad with detailed meat terms, but we got like 12 pounds of beef and pork. Really excellent stuff. The point is, kudos to Peter for really making the best out of this opportunity and rolling out a national plan for his meat subscription business. And I'm really happy to be able to bring you that resource as well, because I doubt many of us have a great meat guy. And this would be a really solid option if you don't. As I mentioned, Peter is aware of ButcherBox. We examine these things when we're going to go into the market. And as he said, their box can vary a little bit, but it's around 8 to 10 pounds of meat for $150, where his is 12 pounds for $160. So there's definitely a bit more bang for your buck with Peter and he's THC Inner Circle. That's got to count for something too. Personally, I really like getting my meat by mail this way. It forces me to eat from home, and I just got to go get some side veggies and to steam some broccoli and cook up a couple steaks. That's easy for even me to do. So maybe for you guys who don't cook all that much, treat your partner to a good meal with probably the most natural meat you have available to you. Consider giving it a shot. Peter really is taking a chance here. We didn't even mention that you could get it during the interview because you really couldn't then. And I just see it as a win-win for everyone if you were to pick up a box for you and yours. Just go to mastodonvalleyfarms.com and look for Meat CSA underneath shop. He's got a couple different packages. And big thanks to him for doing all that. Also keep in mind that in Higher Side News, the joint session is on the 25th at 7 p.m. Pacific this month. Come talk to me and other listeners and share your stories. It's definitely a nice hang. Also keep in mind that the Higher Side overhaul is underway. The free and plus sites will be coming together and the whole infrastructure is getting a big modern facelift in the next four to six weeks. Of course, I would love for you to sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus and enjoy the second hour of all my shows, I think it's worth it for what I try to bring you every episode. In this one, the second hour gets into using nature as a technological template, how indigenous attitudes about spirits filter through their everyday lives, what independent farmers deal with when butting up against the system, the off-the-grid elements of Peter's farm and lifestyle, how to make a farm profitable and tweaking our idea of wealth, just how different the meat from ethnically treated animals is from factory farmed meat, and what the future looks like for America's resources and the extent of the damage we've done. As well as the methane myth. That was great too for that vegan argument that cows are putting out more greenhouse gases than the system can support. He gives a great counter argument to that. So please support the show you love and get all of it because you love it, and I think our guests say so many great things that I know I'd want to hear it all, without any breaks or ads. So that's that, and I'll see you next time. Big thanks again to Peter Allen of Mastodon Valley Farms, your move corporate food producing parasites, glyphosate, crop soakers, and evil entities involved in the limitation and quality reduction of our food supply. Your fucking they built a little
Some crazy garbage called the blood of the exploited working class. But they've overcome their shyness. Now we're calling them your highness. And the world screams, save me THC. They destroyed the bonds of friendship and respect between the only people left who'd even look them in the eye. Now they laugh and make a fortune off the same ones that they tortured. And a world screams, save me THC. Garbage called the blood of the exploited working class.